Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Uh, the Bible, Exodus chapter 20, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood afar off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with you, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So just so far... Uh, God's word to us, and, and Lord, that promise that you made uh, to Moses and, and us praying that this morning that you would continue to have your name remembered among us in this place, and Lord, that you would bless us as we live seeking, Lord, to honor you, and even this morning praying that you would continue to mold and to form us and to teach us and to lead us in ways that glorify your name. And so, Lord, may uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Well, looking around the congregation this morning and uh, being aware sort of of our constituency, a question this morning. If you were, or statement, if you were born, now just think about your birth date, if you were born between the years of 1946, some of you, and 1964, you are identified by sociologists as being baby boomers. Alright, so we have lots of baby boomers here this morning. Boomers, we are told, and this, this is what is told of you. Uh, boomers have a strong and focused work ethic. Baby boomers are typically hardworking individuals who often define themselves by their professional accomplishments. Well, for various reasons, uh, those of us, and I'm one of those who fit into that category from that era, we always had drummed into us that if something is worth doing, now think about yourselves, if it's something is worth doing, do it properly. Okay, Marat, that, that's what I was raised on. Uh, we, we, we have found, and, and people who have worked with me will know this of me, uh, regularly nagging others, saying that anything won't do. Sloppiness, not acceptable. Well, not everybody's a baby boomer, but I think regardless of the era you fit into, 
many of us here would agree that in most instances, in fact all instances, there is a right way of doing something and there's a wrong way of doing something. Would that, would that be right? I mean, there's a right way, there's a wrong way. And, and we, we don't live by and large as believers. We should not live by the maxim that in all things there are many ways to skin a cat. And so the question we're confronted with this morning is a very important question, considering whether anything will do when it comes to the worship of God. I want us to think about that this morning. Will anything do when it comes to the worship of God? So last week we considered what I call the first response to the Ten Commandments, that, and it was that of having a certain kind of fear. There is a certain kind of fear that we as believers ought to have that, that leads us to a place not to sin, so that we do not sin. But today as we move on in Exodus 20, I want us to consider this second response to the Ten Commandments. It's worship. So we're going to consider worship this morning. But I want to show you, very important in the era that we're living in, the day that, that we are, we're experiencing, it's to see that it's not just any kind of worship. We are to worship God. Of course we are to worship God. But it's not just any kind of worship. And I only have two points this morning. And the first one is this. We are to worship God on God's terms. What does that mean? Let's have a look and see how this passage unfolds. First, thinking a little bit about how we think and what we do. The way we feel, even in a service like this this morning, will lead us to conclusions regarding the worship. What you experience. We tend, as people today, to lean on our feelings to determine the rightness of worship. So we measure the authenticity of worship uh, by much of how much are we enjoying what is taking place as we gather together. We ask questions, and we do this as a staff on a Tuesday morning. Uh, how how was the worship on Sunday? How did you feel? How did you respond? How did you feel when you were listening to the sermon? And so, yes, we, we are emotional beings and our, our feelings are important. In fact, they're very important and there's a place for feelings. But, but I want us to shift our thinking this morning and, and to speak in human terms about God, if I could do that just for a moment, and see that worship is not measured by what we feel or how we feel. Worship is measured about how God feels about how we worship and what we do together. And so the question, what does God think of your worship? What does God think of our worship must be asked and answered. Does what we do, does what you do on your own and think about worship delight God? It's quite a penetrating question. Or, or is it just about you? Well, God points out that there is a right way to worship and there's a wrong way to worship. And so I want to consider false worship as we tackle this passage. If you ever look at verse 23, you shall not make gods of silver. Now, now pause for a minute. We must consider these, these words as God reveals them to them. These gods of silver are visible. You can see them. 
Do not make gods of silver to be with you, or with me, God says. God is invisible. Nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold, visible. So at first glance, this kind of, when I first tackled this passage, I thought, but hang on, aren't we just going back to the first and the second commandment? It seems to me that this uh, is redundant, it's repetitive, it's unnecessary. God is simply repeating the first and second commandment. But again, like other scriptures, when you begin to study, when you begin to think and you look a little bit deeper, God is saying something more. God is confirming, I am the only God, which he did, and I'm invisible. You don't need other gods, and I don't want you to have visible idols. Now, verse 22 precedes verse 23. Just have a look at verse 22, and there's a play on words here. A play on words and and uh, something very important for us to grasp. You have seen for yourselves that I've talked to you from heaven. Now, what, what's he saying? What's he, what's he exposing to us? And there's a strangeness over here in terms of what God says to them. You have seen, you have seen that I've talked with you. In other words, he's saying you have eyes to hear. That's odd. You have eyes. Shouldn't he say you have ears to hear? But he's saying you have eyes to hear. Now, why is that important as we understand this passage? Because God goes... He's going on to say, as has said, don't make gods of silver or gold. Why? Because when you saw me, you didn't see me. They didn't see God. What did they see? What you saw was smoke and lightning and you heard thunder and trumpets. Now here's the point. You saw me by hearing me speak. So don't make things you can see because I'm invisible. Be careful how you come to me. And so the point being, idolatry will not do. Just anything for God will not do. It's a warning that we should not be constantly attractive or wandering into styles of worship or practices of worship where we give attention to that which is attractive but lesser than God. Where we begin to fill up the space that belongs to God with lesser things. Idolatry, again, there's a difference if you look at the first commandments and, and this verse before us. The idolatry in the first commandments describe things in heaven and earth and under the sea. Now God points to the false worship as gods of silver and gold. Why does he do that? I'm thinking, Lord, why this change in emphasis? What, what is it that you're seeking to, to teach us or to expose to us? He's, he's warning us here against this tendency that we people have to be distracted from true worship. What I want to call this morning the attraction of glitz and glamour. I want you to test yourself. One evening. Take a drive down to Menland, Maine. Okay, you all know where Menland, Maine is. I think we all do. But go there at night and drive down opposite the casino and uh, just see what that does to your emotions. Because that particular building is a glass building. It's a, a building with an array of multiple colors and patterns and flashing lights, uh, all arranged in an attractive design, glass-covered building. And the point is this. It's appealing. 
You're attracted to it. It's attractive and it's alluring and, and there's that sense. Every time I drive past there, I think to myself, I want to go in. We, we are drawn to glitz and to glamour. And, and, and God is showing us over here, God is revealing here that He cannot be defined, He cannot be confined to any form of visual glitz. The best you can do, and Menlin Main is a wonderful design. You can't make that to be God. Glitz stirs our emotions and it, and, and it has the, the temptation to lead us into what, what one commentator has called militant informality. The militant informality propagates messages and focuses the context of our day. Anything will do. Anything will do for God. God says anything won't do. The message and practice of false worship is one of join the party and feel the vibe. As long as it makes you feel good. Even if there's no clue or idea of who God really is. So anything will not do. God is invisible. God is seen by hearing. He reveals himself by speaking. And God tells us what he's like and how we are to worship. And so I want to move on now to a second aspect of that first point, God worshiping God on, on his terms. What is it? What does true worship look like? So we go on to these next few verses. We see uh, God prescribing in some detail in terms of true worship for them then. Now, again, think of the passage in that context amongst these people have been rescued from Egypt. They're in the desert. These things are being revealed to them. And so he says, verse 24, An altar of earth you shall make for me. Verse 25, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. Now you think to yourself, what on earth is this about? What is he saying? Well, God is saying that the altars that you are to build are to be made from just plain earth and stone that he created, that he made. Now I want to quote, I think, a, a, an author that really understands this and explains it. He says, dressed stone... We used by the people of Canaan, in other words, the other nations to construct their altars. Because they were, they, uh, because they were building materials of the highest quality from, uh, from which all the roughness had been chiseled away. An altar made from such costly and aesthetically pleasing stone would be a tribute to human craftsmanship. See the distraction? It's a distraction away from God. He goes on. But, it would be defiled from the Lord's point of view because it distracted attention away from him and his goodness. And then he concludes, the restriction to natural stone would have emphasized that it was a God-given provision and not an act of human conception. See how unique God is? We go on and we know too that the Canaanite worshippers were involved in some Obscene acts, they combined this uh, uh, obscenity with idolatry. They were involved in ritual prostitution and, in fact, in some other forms of indecent exposure. So you kind of wonder why, uh, it well, it does. It explains, verse 26, why nakedness is spoken of 
uh, here in Exodus chapter 20 verse 26, and you shall not go up the steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now we're trying to reach, uh, uh, true worship. What is it that God is, is calling us and, 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 and expecting of us? Now forgive me, but I've got to stick with the passage. In the ancient world, at this point in time, they did not wear underwear. Okay, no undergarments. Alright, so now hang on. Now, instead they had free-flowing garments. Now, immediately what came to my mind is that horrible thing that you have to put on when you go into theater. Okay, any of you been for an operation recently? And, and they tell you to take your clothes off and put on this green thing. Well, that's, that was kind of what they wore in those days. So, so not to put it crudely, what, what we have to understand here, if you were wearing this free-flowing gown, and if you had steps, and you had wind, and you had people under the steps, did you get the picture here, people under the steps, and, and you weren't wearing anything underneath your robe, and you may be indecently exposed. Okay, so we're trying to understand the Bible. The Bible tells it as it is. So, so what, what is God saying here? God is taking the worship of his name so seriously, I don't want any indecent exposure at all. Again, God will be worshipped as he wants to be worshipped. And so I've tried to pull this together in a, in a, in a, in a summary. What, what can we take from this? True worship is characterized by the principle and practice of simplicity and purity. Not like the surrounding cultures, many of the movements in our churches today are seeking to be more like the culture to reach the people of the day. It's not God's way of worship. We are distinct from the present culture. We are distinct from the cultures around us. And so it is that we are to give our undivided attention that he is worthy of simply and morally. So what's the challenge? There is a challenge. We should not leave a service saying that was great worship. Yes, it, it may be. We have wonderful worship leaders. We have wonderful teams. We know that. We should not be leaving saying, you know, this particular musician was great and that particular musician was great or the leader was great. Or did you see the designer shoes that Brad had on this morning? Okay. No. And folk, if I may say this, another thing, we don't want to leave the service. And I'm only speaking as, as one of the men in the church. Oh, she had great legs. It's, it's a distraction. It's a, it, it, it should not be simplicity and purity. And, and we should be leaving a service saying, what a great God. That's where we ought to be going. That's what we ought to be, to be feeling and experiencing, uh, comprehending, apprehending, uh, God captivating our hearts in such a way that we can do no other than give him the glory that he is worthy of. So the second response to the Ten Commandments, uh, worship. Not just any kind of worship will do. We to worship God on His terms. But also we are to worship God according to His provision. That's my second point. Like them, we see by hearing. I want to elaborate just briefly on that. They saw from hearing God speak, verse 22. 
And we see, since God has spoken and it is written, and just one verse to remind you of, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and useful. Right, so, so how do we see, and, and I read that passage, that prayer from Paul in Ephesians, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. How will your, the eyes of your heart be enlightened? Through the word, by the spirit. So this revelation that God gives is, is, is his provision to us. God has condescended to speak to us. He reveals himself to us in scripture. So the God who makes himself known or made himself known on the mountains by smoke and, and the trembling of the mountain spoke and it is written. But the focus of the verses before shows us something of God's provision for worship. Verse 21. Remember that the people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And while he's in that darkness, God instructs Moses regarding the altar that we've referred to. And again, I'll read verse 24. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. God has told him what he doesn't want regarding the altar. But now he tells Moses what he does want. And he wants this special kind of altar. And uh, perhaps good to just dwell a little bit on this. The word translated as altar comes from the Hebrew word for slaughter. Okay, so, so the altar was a place to make sacrifice for sin. If you want to read about all the different uh, sacrifices, you can do so in the book of Leviticus. And there, there are many sacrifices, but, but this particular uh, passage here focuses on two two of the most important sacrifices which I want to elaborate on. The first was the burnt offering. What was, what was the burnt offering? It was sometimes also called the whole burnt offering because the entire sacrifice, if it was a sheep, if it was an ox, the entire animal would be consumed in this burnt offering. And the burnt offering was a sacrifice of atonement. It paid for the sin of the people. It appeased the wrath of God. God so provided a way for these sinful men and women to approach him. His provision was the designated burnt offering. This animal without defect was placed on the altar and it was consumed with fire. This uh, word burnt offering, in fact, also means to rise up. And the thinking is, the idea is that the smoke of the offering would rise as a pleasing aroma to God. Where God would recognize that a sacrifice had been made for sin. And, and we know so well, uh, the one who really deserved to die was the sinner who offered the sacrifice. But instead the sacrificial animal, usually a lamb or goat or ox, died on the sin, in the sinner's place. And God accepted their sin of atonement. The second was the peace offering. Now I found this very interesting. It, it was also called the fellowship offering. I don't know if you've ever wondered what this fellowship offering, uh, offering actually was about. And I'm going to give the Hebrew word shalamim. Shalamim, and it's very similar. In fact, it comes from the root word uh, for peace, which most of you will know, shalom. All right, so w- w- what's going on over here? The fellowship offering dealt with sin, but with a different emphasis. It showed what kind of relationship God had with his people once atonement had been made for sin. 
In other words, it addresses the intimacy, the fellowship, the connectedness, the ongoing walk that we have with God. It was a tangible reminder that the people were no longer separated from God. There was no longer this wedge between them, but, but there was now this connectedness, this fellowship with Him. Now, the way of doing the offering was different. The fellowship offering was not consumed by fire, only the fat was burnt. The choicest part of the animal was offered to God, the fat. The rest was cooked until it was tender and eaten by the worshippers as a way of celebrating God's grace and his goodness. The fellowship offering was a feast celebrating the connectedness and the fellowship, the intimacy and the glory of God. Quite another author by the name of Longman, he said, Shalom, after all, refers to the condition that results from the from being in covenant with God, we're at peace with God. Sin disrupts shalom, but shalomim, fellowship offering, describes the condition that results once the breach has been resolved. God's provision is on the altar. The altar with its prescribed sacrifices comes after the Ten Commandments. Why? Because God had given them commandments, he, he wanted them to obey the commandments, but he knew that they would disobey the commandments. And so he provides a way of access to him. He provides a way for their sin to be atoned for. He provides for the burnt offering, the peace offering, so that they could experience forgiveness. And so the provision through the altar that God will draw near to his people. Now I love this verse and I, I prayed it this morning before, before I preached because I think it's a prayer we ought to pray as a church. In every place where I caused my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And may God do that here at the hill and Arcadian and churches all over where his name is proclaimed. But it does bring us to a third sacrifice. I've called it the final sacrifice. So the redemptive purposes of God unfold throughout the, all of the Old Testament. There's a progression of revelation. And ultimately uh, culminating at the final and ultimate sacrifice for sin, which is the cross. And just there's so many verses I looked at, and I just I selected one from Hebrews chapter 13, just to, to remind you that, that all of this was just a picture in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, not a repeated sacrifice, once for all. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And so the provision for worship. When Jesus was crucified, he fulfilled all of those offerings, the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, the sin offering. He made atonement for our sin. And we have fellowship, intimacy, connectedness with him. Access to God, to worship, is according to the provision of God. And so, again this morning, just to close off, God draws near to and blesses those who take hold of his provision. Repenting from their sin, placing their trust in Jesus, remembering that apart from his atoning sacrifice, there is no hope. And I think the question has to be, have you done so? Are you doing so? Do you believe that with your heart and soul? Uh, taking hold of this gift of salvation. Uh, confessing with your mouth. Professing 
that is confessing with your heart and professing with your mouth. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, even just reminded of these uh, provisions early on in your revelation, pointing to the reality of this great work of redemption accomplished on the cross, and the evidence even here this morning of that redemption applied in many people's lives, we pray that that would continue to happen in more people's lives, that you, Lord, would cause your name to be remembered among us, that you would bless us, that you would be glorified. Lead us, Lord, in in, in ways that are pleasing to you, and may we not deviate. Keep us, Lord, we pray, on the straight road we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.